most people have vague sense of anxiety but don't address it. They're busy with work. They've got families and commitments and all the rest. I have no doubt whatsoever that all of us, on one level or another, are suffering from climate anxiety. And it's driving up aggression. Um, it's driving up um, our turn politically to the far right. It's driving up and will drive up economic consequences. It will affect communities and families and individuals over time, and it will get worse as climate change continues to take its toll. But right now, a lot of people are suffering from climate anxiety and don't know it and don't want to know it. That's psychiatrist and earth activist Lisa Van Susteren. This week's guest on episode 117 of the Unplugged podcast. Well, hello there and welcome to another inspiring week of the Unplugged podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by igniting a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and activated world. And this is the audio space where you will hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers and free thinkers of today's rapidly collapsing world. My name is Deb Ozarko, warrior of truth, cultural revolutionary, status quo crusher, and passionate lover of life here to welcome you to your bi-weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, critical thought, provoking words, and open-hearted inspiration from my paradigm-busting headquarters in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. And as I mentioned in the previous episode in 116, I mentioned that I was going to be releasing a, uh, a an extra episode this month. So I was going to have three in a row, and here it is. This is the extra special episode for this month with my very special guest, Lisa Van Sustern, and I'm very excited to release this episode this week for you because I've been hanging on to this very special episode. I'm going to keep saying special because it is a special episode, but hanging on to it until now because I think that it's increasingly pertinent and applicable in today's rapidly imploding world with everything that's going on and playing out and what I think we all know, those of us who are living a conscious life, that is, who we all know that things are going to get exceedingly worse after the 20th of January of next year. So this episode is particularly important in the times that we're living in. And before I speak a little bit more in this introduction about the content of this interview, I want to let you know that this was recorded before our move to the Okanagan. And as a matter of fact, it was recorded the day before our departure. So you'll notice references to an epic storm system that was descending on the Sunshine Coast at that time. And I can tell you now looking back that it was indeed an epic storm, but we left before we could experience the brunt of it. But it brought up some really interesting questions which are applicable for all of us in these increasingly uncertain times. And speaking of which, you know, many of us are are increasingly feeling the mental, emotional, and spiritual effects of these increasingly turbulent times. And it's affecting us on a psychological level in ways that are bringing up 
anxiety that we may not even be aware of. Now, that might not be the case with you listening, but it's certainly the case with the uh, unconscious collective, I'll, I'll, I'll call it, out there. But I have been getting, I just want to let you know, I've been getting more and more emails from listeners and blog readers who are feeling quite lost and who have no idea how to navigate the, uh, the aggression, the violence, the racism, the hostility that is playing out in our world. And, you know, my answer is always the same. It's always about going within because your heart knows everything. And sadly, it's the place that most people fear because we're so deeply conditioned to always be doing rather than being. And when we go into that place of the heart, it's more about being and listening and being still and realizing that no matter what, we're safe from a soul perspective, from a soul perspective. And honestly, within, that is our safest place. The safest place always, always, always will be residing within you. And I think that people will either be forced to under, understand this as things become increasingly worse or else they're just going to be swallowed by the violence. And, and as always, it comes down to choice. So the ultimate choice is, do you choose your soul or do you choose the fear, the despair, and the hostility of the external world? The soul's inside. And it's just, uh, it, it always brings me back to our impermanence. We are impermanent from a physical perspective, but from a soul perspective, it's completely the opposite. So uh, anyway, I could get on to a whole probably three hour long discussion on this alone, but you've heard me talk about this on many occasions already if you've been listening to the show for any length of time. So in order to understand and navigate these times from a perspective that is grounded in mental sanity. This week's guest speaks eloquently about what the hell is going on and why we just can't make sense of it all. And this, to me, is liberating. So Lisa Van Sustern has an impressive and extensive bio, which I share in this week's interview introduction, so coming up. So in this shorter introduction, let's just say that Lisa and I are kindred sisters in our concern and our love for this planet. And this week's conversation is a testament to that love, which I'm sure that many of you out there listening can relate to. And we explore lots of uncharted territory because Lisa is one of the few psychiatrists speaking out about climate anxiety and how it affects us both personally and collectively. And this week, we also have an, a very interesting discussion on how men and women who are insecure with the masculine aspect of who they are often act out this insecurity with aggression, violence, hostility, and, uh, and domination in various ways. And we're seeing this playing out particularly with racism. And you will also see how this is manifesting more and more with increasing regularity in today's world as the insecurity seems to be um, emerging from the shadows. 
So this is a really profound and powerful conversation, and I am deeply honored to share Lisa's voice on this show. Her passion is palpable, and I have a strong hunch that this is an episode that you will want to listen to more than once. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Lise, to this show. I, I'm really excited to have you here to talk about, oh my gosh, so many important things that have been coming up for me personally in my own consciousness. And also, it's you know, there's been so much that's been coming up based on the various emails that I've been getting from listeners, and I get so many of them. And I think that what we're going to be talking about today is going to address so many of their concerns and and also, it's going to hopefully put a little bit of ease into people's consciousnesses after uh, after we go into the places and spaces that we're that I'm planning on taking us today. So, first of all, I want to welcome you here, and and then I want to I'm going to just kind of segue right into your background because I've been doing some snooping around, and you have a really really cool resume. And it starts with, I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to give listeners a a synopsis here. You started with a medical degree from the University of Paris, which I think is really cool. Um, A board certified, you're board certified in general and forensic psychiatry. That is cool too. And I've also read that you've worked as a consultant to the CIA, conducting psychological assessments of world leaders. (laughs) <laughs> and when I read that, I thought, well, what a gong show would that would be to psychologically assess world leaders these days, especially in your country. And there's also, there's so much more, including the fact that you're the founder and CEO of Lucky Planet Foods, which uh, when I read that, that made me very, very happy because I noticed that everything's plant-based and that makes me a happy vegan. And also the work that I really, really want to dig into today revolving around the paper that you co-authored titled The Psychological Effects of Climate Change. So as I already mentioned, you have a heck of a resume that I've only skimmed over. So to start things off, I'm really curious about what led you on this really profound and uh, very, I guess, it's a very serious life path and I would imagine it's intense at times. And now you've got a platform that you've created as an important voice for these, uh, these dire times that we're all navigating on this earth from social collapse to biosphere collapse. So I'm just wondering if you could just flesh things out a little bit and just kind of fill listeners in and let them know what led you on this path and what your passions today really are. Well, uh, thank you, first of all, Deb. Um, as an activist, and that's how I see myself, uh, we recognize fully that it's really the platform is driven by people like you, uh, making sure that voices are heard. So we may be in the streets or we may be at our computers writing material, but if people don't hear it, we're just laboring in a in a vacuum. So thank you to you, and also thank you to all the wonderful listeners, because obviously they're uh, taking this in. Um, It is um, allowing us to feel connected to each other, 
um, and it allows us to sometimes feel rejuvenated, sometimes even more concerned. But the fact of this being a community is something that you provide for us, and I'm going to take the liberty of thanking, uh, speaking for them too. So um, thank you very much. Um, how I got started on this, I'll be brief, but um, first of all, I come from a political family. My grandfather was a doctor, and actually, I always like to say that he was one of the key figures in upstate New York, driving the movement to um, purify water and to make sure that it was clean in Auburn, New York, where he was the head of the water board, and Michael Patrick Conway, whom I'm very proud of. But I never knew him, but uh, he really is something, someone I think about a lot. But um, fast forward, 10 years ago, I ran for the U.S. Senate here in Maryland, and it was at that time that I belatedly, from the people that I'm now with, realized what climate change is and how uh, little our time, the window on our ability to act in time was closing, as Jim Hansen mm-hmm. says. And I have to say that as a psychiatrist, some people say, what's a psychiatrist doing talking about this kind of stuff? This is precisely what we talk about, which is facing some of our behaviors and the reality of our resistance to changing them and the consequences if we don't. This is what we talk about day in and day out, bringing the news, not only of the harm that we can foist upon ourselves with our ill-conceived decisions, but our families and our communities. This is exactly what we do, and it comes as a surprise to people, but when they hear this, they realize it. So once I got involved in looking at climate change, or what we used to call global warming, but we've now gone to climate change, it was a, a very, um, the pathway was very clear from a personal perspective. And I will also add that it was Al Gore who trained me way back when in 2005 or six, whichever it was, I can't remember now. And so he gave me my initial self-confidence about the material, and that was another big push. So he deserves a lot of credit, and of course, Many of us do give it to him, but I just want to get that in there. Hmm. So you, I, I'm curious now, you, you mentioned that um, psychologists are speaking about this. And and I'm just wondering, uh, I kind of got the impression that psychologists and therapists and mental health care providers weren't addressing this enough. So You're, absol- you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I should clarify that it is something that is absolutely right on the money in terms of what we do for a living, but that doesn't mean we're doing it. Hmm. But the, the issue is that this is precisely our line of work, warning people about the consequences of decisions that they are making, behaviors that they are engaging in that are going to be bad for them, for their families and the community. But for some reason, and you know, the only thing you can say really is that we're all of us, whether we're therapists or psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, I'm a psychiatrist, doesn't matter who or what we are, we're all capable of denial, and indeed, we are all engaged in it. Hmm. Oh, wow. Well, that brings me to uh, a question that, I, I, that came up last night when I was looking at, uh, I saw a short video that you did on climate, t- climate change denial, and you said some amazing things about climate deniers being too stressed to hear the truth. And now, I mean, 
for people like you and I and listeners, it's becoming increasingly difficult to ignore all of the dots that are connecting around the globe. And yet denial seems to be more rampant than ever. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on why people seem to be digging their heels in even deeper and why it appears, at least to me, that denial is more rampant. Well, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Number one is that if people are in denial because they're scared, and oftentimes that is one of the main drivers of denial, as Mother Nature shows us increasingly that she means business, and there's no ambiguity about fiercer storms, more frequent storms, sea level rise, melting glaciers, 100-degree heat or worse, breaking records year after year, it is very clear that it is getting scary. And so there's one of the drivers, that as people see more and more that their resistance to the truth is not going to work, they will dig in their heels. Remember, and this is what's so critical, we often think of ourselves as only rational people with analytic minds, mm. just not true. We're also very deeply emotional beings who seek to find refuge in the kind of world that we can create for ourselves that protects us from thoughts of our vulnerability. And you bring up climate, and boy, are you breaking through one of the main walls to our sense of integrity. I don't mean honesty, but I mean wholeness. Mm -hmm. And the sense of vulnerability that comes with contemplation of climate dovetails on all of our other vulnerabilities. You know, we're going to, we get sick, we're going to die. And climate change does open a certain amount of the contents of Pandora's box about vulnerability generally. And people have learned to put it out of their minds. It's why we do all sorts of things. Why, even though we know we shouldn't eat something, we eat it. We shouldn't drink something, we drink it. Why we shouldn't do this, we do it anyway. There are lots of other places where we are resistant to change. So I'm not surprised that denial is something that we hear about now increasingly as the realities are uh, being, we're being confronted by the realities even more intensely. And the other thing is that now, as everything gets kind of cranked up, the issue of climate is now increasingly being discussed. The climate deniers, some of them at least, are getting louder. Mm -hmm. So if they're getting, I don't know that there are more, they might be getting louder. Um, I would guess that the people in the middle, and we have to think about this on a spectrum. There are the activists, the, the climate Cassandras, that are walking around day in and day out pulling their hair out, just trying to get people to listen and to hear. Then you have people who recognize that there's a problem, but they're kind of, you know, not showing that they're concerned. They are still emitting in ways that we know aren't right and shouldn't be, mm -hmm. and they're not talking about it much. Then you have way over on the other end of the spectrum, people are just outright denying. So we have to look at these people in a very uh, nuanced way. And the people in the middle uh, might be saying, you know, geez, maybe I should be looking at what behavioral changes I need to make. Maybe climate change isn't 50 years from now. Maybe it is right now. Maybe I should look at this. So we're pulling in more people. 
But on the fringe of the other end of the spectrum, the deniers may be getting louder, not more numerous. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's an interesting observation. And what's the, uh, what's that saying? The squeaky wheel gets the oil. Well, I don't know if it's going to yep. be getting, I don't think it's going to be oh, getting sure. the oil anymore. Well, maybe it'll be getting some oil. Well, they may get a, if you think of the oil as a microphone, because what will happen <laughs> is that people may give them a microphone and the media has been complicit and uh, we're all complicit. I'm not saying it's only the media because all of us are responsible, but the media will give a sense of a false uh, idea about the um, notion that there are people who can reasonably disagree with the science. It isn't um, an evenly balanced group of people. There's only a very few people who have uh, a science background. I don't know of any climate scientists who deny it. There may be a few people who have a PhD in science but not climate scientists who now get the microphone as the media attempts to deliver what they see as a balanced portrayal. It's not balanced. It's like, and I've said this to people multiple times, when I have a patient, and I lost a patient. She had cancer, and she went to her doctor, and he told her, you know, that what they needed to do. And she doctor shopped until she found a doctor who said that they could afford to sit and wait. Well, you know, she died the day before Halloween a couple of years ago. If you doctor shop, if you, call, if you scientist shop, you'll always find a few people who may disagree for whatever reason, and I don't have to even analyze it, but jeepers, if 99% of scientists or doctors are telling you that you need to address something and you're saying you don't, you know, that should uh, drive a lot of flags up in your mind. Yeah. So that's where we are. And then you get people like, well, Trump and Sarah Palin, who just recently, fairly recently, put out a climate change denying movie. Oh, my. <laughs> and those are the people. Yeah, those Thank are... God I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I didn't see it either. I think I would have just been annoyed and irritated. Uh, but I heard about it. Yeah, it was... Oh gosh, it was earlier this year she put one out. She was she was uh, flat out denying everything that 99% of scientists were saying. Okay, As I can weigh in on that too. <laughs> and here's what I have found is that, uh, and I'll say this very openly, I'm not saying this is true of them, but I have also found that talking about climate change, global warming, and what can happen is experienced by some people as emasculating. No damn woman's going to mother nature or push me around and make me scared of her. I'm not going to do it. So the idea is that they are trying to amplify or intensify the sense of their own toughness, mm. their own sense that they associate with being macho. And of course, this is Sarah Palin to a T. I'm not saying that's what's going on with her and climate, but there she stands with her uh, um, some, uh, her hunting and her tough uh, attitude about stuff. She's from Alaska. And this is this whole sort of um, portrayal of oneself as being uh, resilient and tough and strong. And the idea that you would say, oh, my God, we're in trouble and have your knees knocked, which they should be, is something that is anathema to their 
sense their self or the sense of themselves. So you are asking them to think of themselves as being worried, scared, um, not knowing what to do. All of these are attributes that are emasculating to people who um, are are vulnerable to that. I won't add anything more. But to the vulnerable, uh, it is experienced as emasculating. It's not their self-concept. Mm, I have never thought about it that way. But, you know, just using those two examples of Trump and Palin, Sure. They totally fit that persona. They're both they both macho. come across. Yeah, macho bullies. And you're not good you're not macho if you're worried about climate change. Exactly. About mother nature. Yeah, mother <laughs> nature. It erodes the sense of independence and masculinity. Wow. That is profound. Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up because it, it sheds some light on uh a mindset that I just don't understand. And that actually makes perfect sense, again, because it just fits exactly with their personas. Well, and let me add that we know well, and I'll say this as a psychiatrist, that people who tend to overcompensate trying to portray themselves as extremely independent and extremely macho, deep down inside are just the opposite. Mm. Mm -hmm. They are neither independent nor macho they have dependency issues that are unresolved and they have a sense of courage or strength that is as well uh, is actually on the other end of the spectrum they feel very vulnerable this is reaction formation it's overcompensation for beliefs that are deep down in their embedded in their hearts that they have not yet confronted Hmm. So it seems like the louder and more aggressive the bravado, the, you deeper, got it. the deeper the insecurities really are. And so they've just you got this, it. this facade that is... You got it. Yeah. Exactly. Well said. Wow. Wow. That is profound. Gosh, thank you. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I look around at my neighbors and I guess they, a lot of my neighbors have masculinity issues then too. Cause... Well, and, and you'll find them in places where it's a little bit wilder because they have gone places and they have stayed in places that reinforce this self-concept of being independent and being tough. Hmm. Hmm. And or living... the, culture, the culture has invited them to think of themselves that way in addition. Wow. Okay. This is profound. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. It just, cause this is like, this has been bothering me and I've been trying to figure it out with my own intellect and I just, you're trying empty. to make it rational. I was, <laughs> I, and it's not, and it's not, it, it, and you are dealing with what you can see, but it's what you can't see. It's the missing piece that you can't see that puts it all together. Oh, Okay. Well, along the same lines, you know, there are so many symptoms of collapse that are playing out for all of us now. And you and I were having a little conversation before I started recording about you, you used a term that I thought was amazing, converging complexities. But this in this kind of plays into like the collapse that I'm witnessing from social collapse to, you know, with the mass shootings and police brutality and terrorist attacks to cultural collapse and to the collapse of the biosphere. So from your perspective, I'm curious to know your thoughts on how this stress, whether it's conscious or unconscious, manifests in the average individual as well as in the collective psyche and how that's all playing out. 
Okay. So how, how is it masked or how is it present itself? Actually, why not both? Okay. All right. So here's the point is that I'll give you a little story. Uh, for years now, of course, I've been a practicing psychiatrist, and many times patients will come into my office, they don't know what's wrong, they can't sleep, they got this problem, they feel unhappy, they're tearful or something else, they don't feel right. And at other times, people will come in and say, you know, I feel anxious, I don't know why, I need something, give me something for my anxiety. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that people don't always know when they're anxious, they don't always know why they're anxious, and they often don't want to deal with it. So they want a pill. They don't want to talk about it. Mm. And, of course, some people come in and say, I'm anxious about money. I'm anxious about my marriage, and et cetera. Those are people on the other end of the spectrum, but we're not talking about them. What I am talking about is most people have vague sense of anxiety but don't address it. They're busy with work. They've got families and commitments and all the rest. I have no doubt whatsoever that all of us, on one level or another, are suffering from climate anxiety. Mm. And it's driving up aggression. Um, it's driving up um, our turn politically to the far right. It's driving up and will drive up economic consequences. It will affect communities and families and individuals over time, and it will get worse as climate change continues to take its toll. But right now, a lot of people are suffering from climate anxiety and don't know it and don't want to know it. And our job is to continue to drive home what's happening because it's really by confronting the anxiety, unearthing the name of the anxiety as much as we want to run from it, that is the energy behind the solution. So I have dealt with people for many, many years chipping away at their resistance in order to get to the root of what the problem is, not with a pill, because that won't do it, mm -hmm. but at understanding the legitimacy of why they're anxious and figuring out with them, okay, now what should we do about it? And that's the paradigm right here. Talk about what the problem is in no uncertain terms, and then segue to here's what we can do about it. Hmm. Well, you, you know, you brought up some really good points there. And like the, the one thing that I want to just hone in on right now is the rampant medication and the chemical suppression of, of this anxiety. And also, uh, you know, I believe that there's a lot of grief that is unexpressed and that probably manifests as anxiety or depression and, and other stresses. So what I'm noticing is that this psychological stress is leaking out from our unexpressed pain for the world. And I think that most people are just so unconscious of it that they feel like the only, because they can't name it or because they can't identify exactly what it is, they just reach for the pills. So I'm curious to know your thought on this. Just like, it just seems like we live in an over-medicated, really kind of uh, numbed out society. Boy, do I love your expression, chemical suppression. I have not used that expression, but I wrote it down while you were talking. I think it is an amazing uh, term, and I'm going to use it. I'll credit you, but I'm going to use it. I often refer to my patients' attempt to medicate themselves through uh, the reality of the world around them and the steps that then are not available to them to take to correct the problem uh, with an allusion to... Um, 
uh, Brave New World, in which the medication Soma is given to factory workers so that they will continue to do the work without asking any questions. So Soma is the, um, the pill that was used um, in Huxley's book, and I hope I'm not misstating this. Um, I need to confirm, but I think I'm right, um, that your um, reference to chemical suppression, Soma, and preventing people from knowing what's bothering them is keeping us from engaging in the solution. So it is imperative that we look at these issues. And frankly, the restorative effect of nature is now increasingly being documented as effective ways to lower our blood pressure, to lower our heart rate, our respiration rate. And indeed, we even know that people are more generous when they have been out in areas of nature where they see green. We know that prisoners are less violent. We know that patients leave the hospital more quickly. And we know that in Japan, for example, they have something called Shinrin-yoku, which is called forest bathing. Lots of movement now towards recognizing that we have strayed from our evolutionary home. Mm-hmm. and that we will find uh, succor, rejuvenation, and uh, harmony when we go home. And we need to make these changes very quickly because technology has given us the impression that we are masters of the universe, and the universe and the laws of physics don't care how many high-tech gadgets we have. Oh my gosh, I have so many questions. So now I just have to narrow it down <laughs> what I ask first. But why don't I start with the technology question? Because, uh, you know, even though you and I are privileged to be having this conversation, I'm on Skype and you're on your landline. Personally, I have some pretty strong opinions on how technology has served more in disconnecting us, not only from the natural world, but also from our, our, from our true nature. And I feel like it's done that far more than it's connected us. And I personally feel that our technological addiction in every aspect of our lives is an influential player in our collapsing world. And so like, I really want to explore this conversation more with you and, and how this. (laughs) I'm thinking I want to explore the conversation more with you. (laughs) This is so on the money. Um, I just, I, I, you must've been thinking about these things for a long time (laughs) because your um, ability to very concisely address them and to pull out the issues that I think are so destructive is really noteworthy because I agree with you. I, I'll confess, um, on my husband and he, he will laugh at the reference to him. But he said to me not long ago, "Do you want to go out tonight, or you're going to spend the night, uh, the evening, deleting emails?" <laughs> and that's you know, and I'm sure people laugh because it resonates. We are spending more time trying to divest ourselves of the mountain under, uh, of communications under which we lie than we are engaging in that are the, the actions that are restorative, connecting with family, having time to make dinner together, sit down together, uh, have time for our friends, for walks outside. We can't, we got to, uh, I'm speaking for myself now and maybe others, but we have so many commitments now because of this technological Mm -hmm. era 
that it's really hard to wiggle free. And um, you have really put your finger on it. It is an addiction. And there's a famous philosopher whose name I actually, I think it's, uh, I can't, if it's Schopenhauer, I I may be wrong, but, uh, well, it doesn't matter. The point is, one of them said, as the the twig is bent, so the tree is inclined. And as we continue to bend ourselves answering to the needs of technology, as opposed to the needs of ourselves as sentient humans in nature, or presumably looking to be in harmony with nature, where is this going to end up? This is not a good path. It's not a path towards a sense of um, well-being and harmony and connection. It is increasingly mechanized, um, disembodied, and um, unrealistic. We can't handle all of this. And I think that it's making many of us numb to those things which are innately human. Mm-hmm. You know, I I live in, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. It's, you know, I'm surrounded by mountains and ocean and ah, rainforest. Oh yeah, it's it's stunning and old growth trees. And in the summer months, we're inundated by tourists from the U.S., from other parts of British Columbia and Western Canada. I mean, b- people just converge on this area just to get, uh, I guess, immerse themselves in nature. And I say that in air quotes because, you know, I'll be walking my dogs in some of the places that I love to go hiking and I'll see families walking along with their iPhones, texting in, in like old growth rainforest, or there's the selfie culture. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's so, for me, it breaks my heart because, well, first of all, I don't even own, I don't own a cell phone. I don't even own, I don't own an iPhone. I don't own a cell phone. And this is a conscious choice. I want to live my life more connected to nature and less connected to technology except for to use it as a tool like we're using it today to be able to communicate important messages but other than that I turn this stuff off and I am immersed in nature so I feel like I'm able to see things from an even broader perspective because I have consciously chosen to disconnect or unplug as much as possible from technology and I see how it is really ruining people and and like the other day for instance um i know you're a swimmer because i heard you mention this in carolyn baker's podcast i want to talk about that too but the other day i was at the pool i was just about to uh to head in and i was just collecting all of my belongings and i saw a mother and her two children walking into the pool and she handed one of the kids, her iPhone, and he just instantly started looking down and walking. He walked right into a car. Like, <laughs> this is oh my God. this is our world. And I'm like, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. It's I watched not right. this kid just walk right into a car. They're just so disconnected from from everything even around them. This And the kid was up to my waist. So it's, it's like, and I see how technology is being used as a pacifier. When I'm in the locker room, this is when I see it the most. You know, mothers are, they have crying babies and they're busy texting on their phones. They're not even paying attention to their kids. And so this disconnect I find really alarming and disconcerting. Um, Well, obviously I agree with you wholeheartedly. It really addresses another issue, which is that 
technology has allowed us to feel powerful mm. because whatever mm. we say, the computer, the phone, or whatever it has to do, and if it doesn't now, we get very, very upset. But that's not the way it is with people. It's obviously much more complex. It requires a great deal of intelligence, emotional intelligence, uh, an ability to perceive nuances and behavior, uh, a capacity to uh, read um, uh, small changes so that we can calibrate how we interact in ways that are good for the community. But one-on-one with a piece of machinery, no such demands are made. We can be as churlish and nasty as we wish, Mm -hmm. and it's still rewarded with action. So we're getting the wrong message, and technology is continuing to enhance and reinforce the message that we can pretty much do what we want as long as we stay away from the complexity of interacting with others. Well, but that's not the way the world works. And our intolerance of each other, our Mm -hmm. impatience with each other, um, our aggression towards each other, many of these things are reinforced by the fact that we never have to wait uh, for anything that our machines need to do, our devices need to do. We're not getting training anymore. And as the twig is bent, so the tree is inclined. Where does it stop? I really feel like the, again, going back to that term that I use, the technological addiction, it's really eroding our consciousness and just, you know, and it's really disconnecting us from the natural world. And when we were talking beforehand, you were mentioning something about, you know, you were having some uh, issues at your home with, with the gas companies. And, and I've been thinking, you know, we're, we're in the, as you and I are speaking right now, we're kind of in the middle of a storm system that is converging from the uh, from Japan. Apparently, there's a typhoon coming our way that apparently is going to bring unprecedented damage to the entire Northwest Coast, from San Francisco all the way up to where I'm living right now, currently in in uh, coastal British Columbia. And I've been thinking, you know, like, okay, so. Now we're in the process. We're going to be, we're supposed to be moving into the mountains on Saturday, but we're expediting our journey because we want to be able to outrun the storm if we can. And I've been thinking like, what, what's going to happen when all of these systems collapse, when we're out of power, when, um, when all of this stuff fails, I think that this is just like, this is just yet another symptom because we're seeing it all around the world. We've been seeing it in Louisiana, in Texas. We've been, we saw it in Fort McMurray with the wildfires. Uh, right now what's happening with, uh, hurricane. Oh gosh, I can't even keep track. There's Nicole and there's the one. Nicole. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole and the one that preceded it, Matthew. Matthew. So, I mean, it's just, it's endless. And this is just, I mean, I'm just speaking about North America right now. I mean, it's, it's all around the world as, as climate change. Well, I'm going to abrupt climate change. I think that's what they're using. The term that they're using now is abrupt climate disruption. That's the term that I've been hearing recently. And it actually makes sense because it's so, it's so, uh, powerful and, uh, scary. (laughs) And, as this descends upon all of us and there's really nowhere to go where we feel safe anymore, all of our, 
uh, our cultural systems are are collapsing. So I think about these things like when we're, when there's a power outage, there's going to be chaos. When there's gas leaks, there's going to be chaos. And you you know again, I'm going to bring up that that uh, term that I loved so much. I wrote down converging complexities that you brought up. And I'm wondering if we we can just kind of explore this conversation a little bit. Sure. Well, uh, you're addressing something that is just terrifying, which is who is going to take care of us mm-hmm. um, when the funds aren't there, and they won't be, as we, people with some bravado say, well, we're going to clean up, replant, rebuild, and they uh, very courageously talk about what's gonna, what they're going to do, but where's the money coming from? Mm-hmm. We can't continue to pay for these things. And I think of it, of course, from a psychological perspective, meaning that when people start breaking down and they're traumatized, they're depressed, they're anxious, uh, who's going to take care of these people? We won't have the funds because the funds are, are the first ones to go are always the one for for uh, discretionary things. We have to use this money for emergency services. So where's the money coming from? Uh, who's going to fix all this stuff mm-hmm. when it becomes every every person for himself as we increasingly seek security by um, uh, regressing to our survival instincts. People are often not at their best when they're trying to survive. Some people are magnanimous and altruistic no matter what. But that's kind of the exception. As resources get scarcer, people generally get scared, mm-hmm. and they start um, trying to... Um, keep things for to themselves or for themselves. And as I look out over what's happening across the planet as a result of um, political instability, Syria, for example, to the drought, and I apologize if you hear some barking, that is not me. Um, <laughs> um, the... Um, uh, well, I had referenced earlier, I'm going to go to a different place, um, that I had a gas leak at my house, and they have come now to fix it, I hope. But but this is the point, is that it really draws attention to the fact that we don't realize that we pick up the phone and get services right now, but this is just my house. What if it's the whole community mm-hmm. because of something that has happened? But my point is that Syria, because of the drought, a uh, secret cable went to the CIA uh, stating that there was going to be political instability unless there was something done about the drought, provide services and food. And indeed, hundreds of thousands of people were um, relegated to the roads to try to find uh, new communities, to find food and water. And the cable said it's going to be a destabilizing force in Syria. And, of course, we can see, we know what happened. And we know that these kinds of events are occurring all over the world. Um, In Africa, same thing, Mali, um, Boko Haram, all of these places around the world are becoming destabilized. With the refugee crisis, then, it's like a domino effect. Uh, All through Europe, we have seen a very sharp turn to the political right uh, Mm -hmm. as people's fears about immigrants 
rise. And, you know, I can understand, I don't endorse, but I can understand that communities that have been stable and recognize their neighbors all these years, they look like me, they talk like me, they live like me, um, that this is something that is going to be profoundly rejected and, as a result, is creating an enormous amount of tension and increased aggression. So these communities are not ready. Who's going to get them ready? I don't know. Um, who's going to help the ones that have no roof over the head? I don't know. Where's all of the altruism going to come from that is needed as the world continues to suffer even more? So there are, as I say, these converging and emerging complexities that where are we going to be safe? Mm-hmm. Um, it the the reality is that um, the reality is that I think that we're going to go through uh, that it, that is going to be a really big challenge, and that's of course why we're talking today, and why we get excited when we see. And I do have to segue to something positive, which is that as the price of solar just drops precipitously, as we see communities beginning to talk about the things that they can do with renewable energy and wind and um, other policies, which, of course, the U.S. is, we're working on them. But as the world begins to realize that we can, that we need to transition so very quickly, and as we confront these realities, that might give us the spirit to go even faster because the Lord knows that's what we need. Mm, absolutely. You know, I was just speaking with a friend of mine the other day and we were talking about the, uh, because this typhoon is in everybody's consciousness right now because it's descending upon the, you know, the coastal British Columbia very quickly. We were talking about a storm system that uh, hit the Vancouver area in 2006 and it knocked, it flattened Stanley Park, which is an icon park mm. yeah and and there were so many old growth trees that were knocked down and i remember i remember that storm very clearly i woke up in the middle of the night and it almost looked like world war three with transformers blowing all over oh the place my gosh. and and that during that storm system the um the water reservoir was contaminated by um <clears throat> landslides there was silt that actually went into the reservoir and so there was uh i mean it was it was a we'll call it a mini crisis, but people were so freaked out about having to potentially boil their water that they were getting into arguments and fistfights in, yeah, right there in, in grocery stores to stock up on bottled water. That hoarding scarcity mentality was rampant. So we were talking about that, just, you know, reminding each other of the situation 10 years ago. And that was, nothing compared to what we're now facing. And, you know, you brought it up a few times about <clears throat> this increase in violence. And I'm, I really want to explore this conversation about how uh, it seems to be that, um, at least what you're alluding to, is that this increase in global violence from, <laughs> and I got to get a dig in here, from the rape culture locker room talk <laughs> to mass shootings to terrorist attacks. And now you mentioned the the refugee crisis. And I'm curious to know how, what your thoughts are on how this relates to our changing world, particularly the climate, because you mentioned the drought and of course all the flooding and everything that's going on. 
And, uh, yeah, I just want to know your thoughts more on how our altered climate is affecting this escalation in global violence. Okay, let me go from the specific to the general. First okay. of all, we know that for each standard deviation of temperature and rainfall, that's increased temperature and rainfall, we have a 4% increase in violence between individuals and a 14% increase in violence among groups. And this is true across all regions of the world and all ethnicities. So that means more assaults, more murders, more uh, suicides, and it means more tensions um, in civil wars and other tribal differences and communities uh, at, in battle. Heat and aggression is linked, mm -hmm. as, again, uh, changes in rainfall. So that we've got, and that's been well studied, that has been, that's very clear. I will also add that uh, increasing levels of carbon dioxide reduce our cognitive sharpness. So that means that we're not thinking as clearly and we don't respond to crises as well. Harvard School of Public Health has recently released that data. So look at CO2, carbon dioxide, and cognitive functioning. Mm. Uh, now, in a general sense, aggression and climate, when people are anxious, when people are fearful, some people are just so amazing. And we've, I remember reading stories about uh, people in, in the Jews in concentration camps. No matter how bad things were, and these were the ones that often survived, they would share their bread uh, with others. Their commitment to life was such that their love for others was always paramount. But that's really the um, I'm not going to say it's exceptional. It's not exceptional, but these are stories that um, are noteworthy because I think most of us, and this isn't a criticism, it's just the way we are, is that when we're in survival mode and things, resources are scarce, we get very frightened and these anxieties can lead to acting out violently. Mm. Yes, they can also lead to a better sense of sharing, but oftentimes they lead to aggression and microaggressions, fistfights, or macroaggressions, something much larger, larger, shutting our borders down, telling people they can't come. Um, uh, other uh, examples of state violence upon others. So it's, it's all part of the same force that is uh, driven by anxiety, a fear of the other, and takes various shapes depending upon who's doing it. You know, when I was watching that little video that you created about climate change denial, you used a, a term that I thought was really powerful. You said uh, you called it pre-traumatic stress syndrome. And I'd like to, I, I'd like you to explain that a little bit more because it just, that's one that really makes a lot of sense to me. I'd never heard it before you mentioned it. And with what's going on in this world and all of these anxieties that seem to be playing out more and more, as well as this global swing to the right and, you know, extreme conservatism and the oppression that comes with that and all of this fear, to me, pre-traumatic stress syndrome seems to resonate on an even bigger level. Well, you sure have done your homework. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, pre-traumatic, and I'm glad you said syndrome because I often... 
um, rather carelessly say disorder, but gee whiz, um, it doesn't seem surprising that this is what we are facing, and it's not a disorder at all. I would describe it, and as you did, as a syndrome that affects us because, and I'll count myself as one of them, um, I really coined the term knowing what has been going through my head mm. for the last several years, and that is I can't stop thinking about it. Even when good things are happening, mm-hmm. I see pictures of tropical fish and a coral reef, and I think, oh, my God, all the coral reefs are under stress. Are they going to be here 10 years from now? I look at some animal in the wild, especially, of course, elephants, and I'm just crushed at the notion that that we are that we are destroying wildlife. Then I see people struggling on the road with uh, trying their to, their possessions on their backs, or I see boats tipping over with refugees in the the Mediterranean, and this goes on in my mind all the time. And it is a version of post-traumatic stress disorder, but one that I would say is a syndrome of people who know that civilization is on the tracks. We see, it's not just hear the train coming, not just feel the rumbling. We can see the train now bearing down on us sitting on the tracks. Well, we're in anguish. You know, we're on fire. Our hair is on fire. And we can't stop thinking about the need to act. It invades, takes us over completely, and feel we feel like climate Cassandras. It's a, another term that I've used to refer to how we are constantly talking about it. We know we shut down conversations at dinner parties. We know we can empty a room in seconds. We know that no one says anything about the weather or temperature or anything to us for fear of unleashing all this because that's where we are. And it's legitimate for us to be this way. We should all be this way. Is there, there is no greater threat, and the reality is we can talk about all sorts of other stuff, health concerns and uh, you know, poverty and all of these, but all of these things have as the upstream cause catalyst climate. And furthermore, when you correct these, these issues, uh, uh, not that they can ever be completely eradicated, but the problem stops. But with climate change... There's There are tipping points where no matter what we do after a certain point, we already have baked-in consequences. So it's not like we can afford to wait, get smart, and then say, well, at least it'll end then. It won't. Mm-hmm. You know, what you said about how it just really, it's its like the forefront of consciousness. I, and it's just, it's an obsessive thought. That's the way I feel too. I just cannot get it out of my my mind and out of my heart. And, you know, my, my belief is that as activists, you, know, you and I are both activists. We're, well, first of all, as activists, we're willing to look at the big picture from all perspectives. And secondly, as activists, we're activists because we love this earth so much, because we love life so much. And so how could it not cause anguish and of course the way things are imploding at such an accelerating rate it just makes it that much harder and you know and and what you said about seeing an elephant or and you know you can see I, I, I like you you know I can see the beauty still there but at the same time I'm so aware 
of how finite it is. I, you know, living by the ocean, I go paddling in the ocean right now and, and it still looks beautiful, but what I'm seeing below the surface is something completely different. I'm seeing fewer starfish. I'm seeing more jellyfish. I am seeing murkier water. I am seeing algae blooms that can now be seen from satellites in space. I'm living this. It's in my front yard. And so I still see the beauty, but I'm feeling something completely different that is bringing up a low grade and not always low grade unease that never goes away. And so, you know, it's, I'm finding it more challenging to find ways to bring myself into a state of harmony and balance with this persistent knowledge that's not only in my head now it's just, it's invaded my body because it's and I mean it's a soul knowledge we all know I think on a on a deep level that that things are collapsing at, a, at an accelerating rate but then some of us like like you and I who have made you know we make this our life work we're even more aware so it makes it more challenging boy we're going back to drink from the poison cup uh, every day, every hour, um, it is on my mind almost all the time. And um, I, you know, um, I'm in a real dilemma, and so are other people, because we realize that the box to check off is to divert yourself doing all these fun things that will take your mind off it. I know that's the correct answer, and I know that we need to create resilience by doing the many things that give us joy and all the rest. But when you are afraid and you know that the waters are literally rising, it is very difficult to say, well, maybe I'll just go to a higher level, uh, an upper floor for now, and try to feel better. You know what's going on downstairs, Mm -hmm. and it is exceedingly difficult. Maybe that's our role, is to be the ones that are on that end of the spectrum constantly talking about it, emptying a room when we have to, uh, <laughs> trying to bar the doors, getting our message out before everybody leaves. Um, but that maybe that's our role. And um, I know that for many of us, it's not something that we chose. It's something we can't help. Yes. Yes. That makes perfect sense. You know, and this is kind of where I'm at in my life too. It's like, no, this is, this is a truth that I carry. And if I silence it, who is served? Certainly not the earth and my allegiance is to the earth. And so, you know, I make it, I go, I don't go out of my way, but I don't edit myself when I'm speaking to, and I'm going to use my neighbors as as an example, because they're a prime example of denial. But when we have conversations and they want to talk about the weather, well, I talk about the weather. I talk about the weather. I don't talk about what a beautiful day it is. I talk about what's going on. And yes, it silences them. And yes, they want to walk away. That makes them squirm. But at the same time, you know, I am not editing my truth and I'm, I'm not imposing on them at the same time, but Hey, if they want a conversation, I am well, not going to you're doing the them. right thing. Cause it, we do this in psychiatry and psychotherapy. It's kind of death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> um, and so do you think that your health is being harmed by the amount of alcohol that you're consuming? You don't think so. Okay. Then the next time we meet, I noticed your liver enzymes are elevated. Um, your doctor said that, so what we do and what you are doing with your neighbors is that you are 
putting before them repeatedly what is necessary to have them finally reach critical mass. So it's the message you're giving and, frankly, Mother Nature backing us up that is ultimately going to reach the tipping point that's necessary. So you're doing the right thing. I know it's not always easy because I don't like to be Debbie Downer all the time, and I know I am. But the reality is the people are still asleep. Yes, exactly. And and I think that, uh, you know, what I'm learning is how to navigate this this internal truth that I feel as well as the external reality that we're all living. And as I learn to navigate it and still remain present and, uh, and living with, well, I'm not going to say with, but from a deep sense of purpose, as I learn how to navigate it in increasingly turbulent times, I want to speak about it even more. And that's why I'm grateful to have people like you on this show, because then it, it shows me that A, I'm not alone and B, that, yeah, I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm not alone in how I'm feeling with the, the, uh, the low grade unease that just is always there, but I'm also not alone in wanting to continue making the world a better place, even if it's too late. Cause the outcome at this point doesn't even matter to me. I just do it because I love this earth so much. Well, that's the healthiest place to be. Once you start looking um, or focusing on outcome, then it's going to be a little bit dicier if you're looking at um, broad forces. If your uh, goals are to make your community go solar or your goal is to um, write a petition and get it signed, then you can see the sense of having reached your objective, and that's very gratifying. And it also is a very healthy place to re-energize. When you look at global issues and uh, are hoping for something bigger and to see results there, it's going to be a little bit more challenging because that's much harder. Mm -hmm. So you're doing the right thing by looking at the process. Are you doing what you need to do? And if the answer is yes or mostly yes, that's going to be a safe and healthy place for you to be. Well, now I, I'm curious along the same train of thought, you know, you've mentioned that you think about this constantly as well, that it's always in your mind and in your heart. And so how do you maintain some balance in your life? How do you stay sane and grounded? Cause I know <laughs> who says I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you attempt Tuesdays. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. So it's tough because I'm in Washington, D.C., where the sausage, I was going to say, where the sausage is being made, or as the case may be, not being made. Mm. And so we are constantly driven by the fact that the hill is like a finger in our eye, day in and day out, of inaction. And we feel a unique sense of responsibility to bring attention to what's happening because we're here and we have uh, uh, the capacity to turn the streets into places where people will um, gather to uh, demand that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission stop rubber stamping pipelines, that Congress take action, that the State Department block the Keystone or not give the Keystone XL pipeline uh, permit. So there is that sense that we are living in a place that is uniquely bearing down on us. We are not in nature where we can have a restorative moment 
unless we conjure it up. And that's kind of hard, but I do find it was very interesting. I took a train ride from D.C. up to Vermont, where my brother lives, and we went from the very industrial feel to the back yards of train tracks here at Union Station and on the way up all through New York, and as we started getting into Connecticut, it started getting greener. Finally, Massachusetts gave way to whole fields of solar panels, and I thought, oh my gosh, what a gorgeous transition, Mm. until finally I start getting into Vermont, and my brother picks me up at this little, same track, this little wooden shack, really, which is the uh, train station in rural Vermont. And there was the transition that is so healthy and enabled me to get away and realize how much I'm reminded of what we're working for. Seeing the face of an Indian farmer, uh, the photo of an animal that he's lost due to a drought or to an uh, animals at risk, all of these things do trigger the need to do it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard when you're in a place that you're continuing to fight City Hall. So for those who can get away and see the manifestation of why we're doing this and can imbibe in the many ways that we return to nature. You mentioned swimming. I love swimming. Not always possible for everybody, but we do know that there are many restorative effects of swimming, certainly, and I'm convinced there are cutaneous receptors, skin receptors that especially well respond to the old days when we were amphibians and going back to the water Mm. was restorative. I'm sure it's linked to our dopamine reward centers, but also exercise. Exercise blocks um, stress receptors in our brain. So you can't stress enough the need to engage in exercise, whatever we know that this is good for us and restorative, not to mention being with others who are like-minded and with whom we can let our guard down and acknowledge all that we're going through. It's substantial. Mm-hmm. And it always seems to come down to the same answers, you know, a repeatedly people say the same things. We need time in nature. We need like-minded community and, and activity, you know, and for me, like as a longtime competitive swimmer and a triathlete. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I mean, now everything's for fitness, but it's critical for me to have that movement in my life because it not only does it help me stay more grounded, but it also helps me process the grief and the unease and the, and a variety of other emotions that I'm feeling. And you know, what you say about, uh, the water, I, there's just something more special about being in the water than on my bike, for instance. I, I am convinced that what happens when we are running and doing some of the things that, um, require, um, uh, let's on water activities. Let's um, that the uh, fight-or-flight mechanism is activated with the adrenaline that comes from running and biking and things like this because it's a much more vigorous um, and relates to our need to run or fight, and that that adrenaline is what's used in the amygdala and is, again, triggering a sense sometimes of our fears, uh, our need to defend ourselves, whereas swimming, uh, this is my theory, is that our amphibian past is being revealed in the benefits, which 
I believe was one of the mechanisms by which we were encouraged as uh, in the old days to go back and absorb water in order to survive and uh, that this is something which is a, a positive dopamine receptor activated happiness, satisfaction, comfort. So I think that this is what is maybe involved. All of these decisions are part of a whole, which is that we have lost the sense of living in harmony with nature with this ill-gotten belief that we are somehow masters of the universe, and we're not. Mm -hmm. And one day we'll return to the stardust of which we are made. But in the meantime we need to look to see how we fit together in the ecosystem working together. Because if we don't, and this is something I read just recently about, if we eradicated all the insects in the world, we would pretty much die out in 50 years. Now, I don't know if those numbers are accurate, but that's what I read. And if we took humans out of the picture, in 50 years, we'd be in great shape. (laughs) So, you know, do the math. We need to really look at how we have attempted somehow to believe that we are the dominant force and that we have the right to be the dominant force and that it's good to be the dominant force. We're not working with nature. We're working against it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, this, this, I think that this is actually a really good place to segue into some of the wonderful work that you're doing with Lucky Planet Foods. Because as a longtime vegan, I was so excited to read about that, that they're all plant-based. And um, I did some searching around. I couldn't find a website. So I'm, I'm assuming that maybe it's still in the works. Well, thank you for bringing it up. It should. There is a landing site, Lucky Planet Foods. There should be a Lucky Planet Foods landing site, okay. if not a website. And you are absolutely right. Um, It is a plant-based food company, and nothing gets out of here that doesn't taste great. We have uh, cookies, which is where I am now, that are made with pureed fruit rather than sugars, and boy, they're just really delicious. And they have the right texture. They have the right, um, I'm obviously making it a selling point, but they're Named after animals at risk. So we have black rhinos, we have Siberian tigers, we have, the, and part of the proceeds will go to the habitat restoration or preservation. Now the reality is that in my panic, and I'll say that accurately, and in the difficulty that I have setting priorities, that Lucky Planet has not yet launched the way I had envisioned it because I was asked to become involved in another group that I co-founded with others called Interfaith Moral Action on Climate in an attempt to capture the moral standing of people who are religious. I'm not religious myself, but I'm spiritual. And so a lot that was initially going to the launch of Lucky Planet was temporarily diverted to action on the part of clergy who could show up in um, various places in front of the White House at protests, getting arrested, going to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to offices on the Hill in the garb of clergy, Jews, evangelicals, Muslims, you name it, and that the moral ground upon which clergy stands is an especially effective message, Mm. stewardship, 
stewardship. You don't have to mention climate change. You can mention stewardship, what we're doing to each other. The people who are most at risk getting hurt the most. Uh, I mean, the people who have done the least being hurt the most. And these are all messages that clergy can give. So Lucky Planet, which is an entirely plant-based company, um, will see its launch as soon as possible. So right now what we got is a landing site and the most and really good product, but we we I need to redirect my attention at that so that the launch gets off the ground. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, and probably you too. But any chance that Lucky Planet is going to be coming to Canada? Oh wow! Uh, absolutely, <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, we're we're coming to Canada soon in a in a store near you. Yes, and maybe we'll talk about this. Because it's, it's really, even the UN has said, and I watch, and I, you know, like everybody else, I'm not perfect uh, on these issues. I have two kids who are vegans. Um, but I have been to groups where the, um, you know, environmental groups and they're serving their roast beef sandwiches mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah. oh, come on. You know, we got a water issue. We got a methane issue. We got a cattle grazing issue. We can't do this. And it's a taboo issue. People do not want you to talk about their food, and they do not want you to talk to uh, you to talk to them about how many miles they fly in an airplane. Those are two taboo issues, and we are not addressing them. And they must be. The UN has said that it is imperative that we shift globally to a plant-based diet. First of all, it's healthy. That's number one. It's idiotic that we're not doing it for health reasons. But there we go again about being in denial <laughs> and not realizing that we're making decisions that are bad for, for us, even though everybody, not everybody, even though we are being told that this is the case. Mm-hmm. So, and then there is then there are airline miles where you see environmental groups you know, we could do video conferencing. We could do what there's where technology is useful, and people are heading into airplanes. Well, um, George Marshall, who's just one of my favorites, um, who is an activist and brilliant psychologist on these issues, um, has um, written a book called Climate Change. Don't even think about it. And he points out people who are sometimes taking small steps, saving plastic and things like that. And he said to get from, he's a Brit, so he said from Auckland to uh, London, you'd have to save 800,000 plastic bags to offset those carbon emissions. People will say, oh, but the plane was going anyway. Well, you know, for every pound that is on that plane, fuel is burned, you start counting up your emissions and you can see that what we eat and how we travel are two very important other considerations. And so Lucky Planet is really focused around the fact that if there's good food, people will make that transition and they won't gripe. Awesome. Um, but you've got to be careful about telling them, yeah, I don't say vegan, I say plant-based, if anything, um, because for some reason uh, vegan is scary, um, <laughs> there's a stigma for attached some to reason it, vegan is scary and I won't go there because that's not the topic today but um, I'm sure we could have another conversation about that <laughs> but um, but it is these are all opportunities that we have that we can make dramatic changes it, just in the way we eat it's, it has been said that the entire transportation sector uh, would be is, that what we eat is comparable to the emissions that involved in the entire transportation sector. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
um, that's pretty, that's a lot. Uh-huh. Have you seen the movie Cowspiracy? I have, yes. Yeah. That is a very powerful movie, and I think, I'm not sure whether they've already, they put out number two, but they've, they've got a trilogy, I think, coming out, and there's going to be a second one that addresses healthcare. So it's going to be along the same lines where they just, uh, they go into doctor's offices and uh, healthcare providers and just uh, explore. It's insane. Yeah. Explore why there's so much resistance around a plant-based diet. <laughs> it is a diet. taboo issue. It's very, very primitive, uh, meaning that if you bring it up, um, and I honestly find this is somewhat gender-based. So I'm wondering if um, there is something, because I find especially, uh, and again, this is not scientific, but I have found that uh, um, women are less prone to getting uptight about talking about eating a plant-based diet than men are. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that there are some gender-related things, and it's quite primitive, so is there a biologic component? You know, I'd love to have a neuroscience look, neuroscientist look at this, do some uh, with the functional MRIs to see what happens when a guy gets real upset if you mention not eating meat and instead eating a plant-based or, God forbid, refer to as a vegan diet. Where does that go? Does that go into their fight-or-flight mechanism? What happens? Um, these are things that are worthy of consideration because I don't see it so much with women, but I do see that when you bring up not eating meat to some men, it really makes them feel uh, very defensive. Oh, yeah. And, and, and why? We need to know why. What's that doing on a, on a very specific, you know, brain? What brain region is being is lighting up? What is that doing? So we can get around it by giving messages that might address what it's stirring up. I'd be curious if it had something to do with uh, the conversation that we had uh, uh, about climate change denying, you know, about the masculinity thing. Because I, I, I would suspect like my partner is a a vegan health coach vegan holistic health coach and most of her part most of her clients are uh they're women and occasionally she gets men but it seems like there's a, a deep deep cultural conditioning particularly towards men that meat and masculinity are related and yet good you said it i didn't <laughs> and yet the the most beautiful men that I have met have adopted a plant-based diet. As a matter of fact, I was out with uh, three wonderful guys yesterday and they were, they're just so kind and compassionate and there's nothing, uh, I don't feel like there's anything less masculine about them. As a matter of fact, I feel like they're more whole as a result of the fact that they've made a choice that is connected to their hearts yes well here we go again about how people what is people's self-concept if they're basically very secure people and that they value compassion and kindness and they are feeling enhanced when they show it then they're having a more likely uh, experience with a plant-based diet that tells them that they're doing the right thing and it's ennobling but if you are basically insecure, um, or maybe some other things, and the compassion and kindness are experienced as a weakness, uh, 
mm. and you're telling them to eat a plant-based diet, you are telling, you're saying you're a girly man. Or you're going to be a girly man. Eat this, uh, and you will be a girly man um, like the others. Um, this is apparently the message because the the sense of outrage is so deep and is not something that can easily be explained by them when you ask them. It, it, it's the the irrational or primitive components are obvious. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that, you know, like, because we've had this conversation, we had the conversation earlier about climate change denial, and you brought up the whole masculinity thing. To me, the the whole resistance to veganism, there's a there are parallels, there are very noticeable parallels. And I think that it's just, I don't know, I don't know what it'll take to break through the denial if it's... Well, let's get, um, I, I have a favorite uh, neuroscientist, and I'll use his name right now because maybe that'll put some pressure on him. John Medina <laughs> has written a wonderful book called Brain Rules. And I just love the book, and I often tell my patients to read it because they really understand stress better. But uh, John Medina is there right in either Oregon or Washington. I can't remember which. But uh, I, I think we need to have a look. Let's do some functional MRIs and find out what's going on. Because if we know what's going on, it's easier for us to design messages that can break through mm. to people and break through to them in a way that isn't threatening, but instead... Uh, is uh, presented as an opportunity. Mm, that's brilliant. And I think that that is a brilliant place to wind down. And I just want to say, Lisa, that I am so, I, I feel really uplifted and I feel uh, very grateful that you're out there speaking about these tough topics. And, you know, regardless of whether people are that the masses are listening or not is irrelevant. I think that, uh, what we're creating right now, you and I right now at this very moment is a critical mass. And that means everything to me. So thank you. If there's one silver lining that I can think of with what we're going through, it's that I have in the last couple of years come to know some of the most amazing people. And I never would have known them. We never would have come into contact with each other. I never would have had the sense of the connection and the beauty of so many other people uh, to gathered together uh, for a common purpose. So for that, I am extremely grateful. Um, knowing you're there and you're doing this and the connection that I feel is so heartening. Um, so anyway, thank you so much, Deb. Thanks for your persistence. Um, and I look forward to additional opportunities to connect. Well, I hope that you got as much out of this conversation as I did, both during the actual interview itself and also during the editing process, because I have the, the benefit of being able to listen as both an active participant in the conversation as well as a passive listener during the editing process and I know that this one has a lot of great meaning for me in a world that just doesn't make sense. So I thank Lisa Van Susteren for saying yes to this conversation also for shedding some light on our global insanity. And as always, you can find the show notes for this episode back at my homestead at devilsarco.com backslash 117. And I am always so grateful 
for any and all support of this show, whether it's through a comment in the show notes, a purchase in my online store, which uh, I just want to add a little side note that I now have print copies of my book Unplug for sale, which I can personalize with a note for you or for whomever you'd like to gift it to. You can also support through a rating and a review on iTunes or a donation through Patreon. Your support is what keeps this show running and it also is what inspires me to keep on producing it. And this brings me to the end of yet another week of the Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. As always, I'm very grateful for your willingness to listen to this message. And there's always one thing at the end to remember, and it is to live with passion, live with purpose, change the world. (laughs) 